Hey everyone, welcome to Savage to Sage, where we explore the evolution of entrepreneurs. In this show, we hear from leaders on the challenges and breakthroughs that have shaped them on their journey toward becoming a sage. Welcome back everyone to Savage to Sage. This is Daniel, and today I have the joy of being joined by Tiffany Souter, CEO of Element3. Welcome, Tiffany. Thanks, Daniel. Great to be here. Why don't you start out just by giving everyone a quick background of Element 3 and the problem that you solve? Yeah, sure. I mean, Element 3 is a marketing firm, and um, I was uh, 25 when I, my dad and I uh, took ownership of what was a small little agency and knew very little about marketing, frankly, my backgrounds in finance and business. Um, but for some reason, just felt really felt a pull towards it. And so I didn't really know, honestly, what problem I was solving. I think entrepreneurs today, or I don't know, um, maybe just smarter ones than me, really have a great thesis about what they want to solve. Um, but there was just something about marketing that had this um, emerging, I think, um, mashup of this creativity that is marketing, you know, from messaging and the visual way that it comes to life. But then also this like very strong science part of marketing data and my background in finance and let's say a comfort level with numbers, I started to see that there was a really unique world that was emerging as you have this intense creativity, kind of the art and then the science of, of, um, of marketing as well. So, you know, we took a small little creative team and really started to put some strategic layering on that to say like, how, how do we really get into businesses and understand what they're doing? And I think our vocabulary in business is actually what sets us apart more than um, capability in marketing, only because the way that you apply the marketing tools is really, I, I think, the difference maker than necessarily just ha- you know, having a single thing that we do really, really well. So I think mm-hmm. really marrying the marketing tools, being really comfortable with a lot of change, which you know, I think we're going to talk about some of the things that we've done well and poorly. And one of the things I've learned as a leader is how to really throttle change. Cause even though I might see it, the organization might be not quite ready to come along with me. And so knowing when to pause and when to run forward is something I'd say I've had to refine over the years. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear more about that and just dive in. And I mean, even start with like, we like to start with the early savage days and, you know, what was it like in that way? And then, how have you grown from there since then? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of create a vivid picture of the starting point, there was, I think, five or six of us. There was a cat in the office that, you know, sort of you walked in the door and you were greeted with like a hairball of puke every morning, which is awesome. Our offices, like every single wall was a different color. It was like very a lot. There was a bathroom, only one. So like boys and girls shared, which is super gross. And our office space is like so crappy that in the winter, like there's literally like snow and ice in the inside of the wall of the windows. So it was very savage from that perspective. Um, I remember when clients would be like, hey, why don't we just meet at your office? I would be like, I just kind of want the world to swallow me whole. Like, let's not. <laughs> you know, all of our furniture was from Ikea, the chairs, you know, like Ikea chairs, like at some point the bolts start to get loose and the chair is mm-hmm. suggestively a chair. It's like a break at any point in time. So. It was very much that, but offices with two to four desks in them and no personal space. And, you know, we thought very hard about every $50 that we spent. So 
I was very savage from that perspective. And you really, my dad is an entrepreneur and he says the first five years is almost always just figuring out product market fit. And so we kind of, I, I joked, if you could fog a mirror and had a credit card, like you could be a client of ours. We were not very discerning. And part was this curiosity of every time we got somebody to pay us some money, we got to really sit still and pay attention to like, what problem do you really have? And the truth is, I didn't know if I could solve it or not, but I started to trust our ability to just be smart. Um, and and so w- with that, I think we just started to get rep- you know sort of rotations in. Like, what is it that the market wants? What is the point of differentiation? There were some wonderful people in the industry because I didn't come from marketing or the agency world or even from Indianapolis. So there were some wonderful people, I think because they didn't, they probably thought I had a six month shelf life um, that would have lunch with me and kind of walk me through the lay of the land. Who were the big players? Where did they come from? Where was the big work? Because I just didn't know. And I was kind of fearless enough to just, I don't know, fearless, stupid, I don't know, bold enough, stupid enough, I don't know what, to just go out and start talking to people and understanding what is the landscape or where was the opportunity for us to play? And I started to see the fact that I had a business background was really unique. Most agency owners had come from the art side or they were writers um, or they had been you know, journalists and they came really from the industry background and had to learn the business. And I was like, I'm coming at this totally different. And that I understand business, which I think is what we're trying to do is help people win in their business. We're not just trying to you know, create work that wins awards, um, which is not to disparage that. That has its role too. But I, I, I started to see the thing I could compete on was our business acumen and the way that we took this thing of marketing that is wildly misunderstood by almost everybody who buys marketing. Um, and it's only, I think, gotten more complex as marketing has you know, the word, is it customer experience in there? Is sales like, you know, kind of like, what is it really? Mm-hmm. And so it was very savage in that we didn't really have a clear product. We didn't really have a clear defined market. We had really crappy office space, um, but we really, I think, had curiosity and mm. a willingness to be able to stay in the pain for a really long time <laughs> until we started yeah. to figure things out. Yeah, that's fantastic. and. I like what you said about takes five years to find product market fit because it it talks to me about like you have to remain like persistent and curious and open and because you're not most people are not going to find it in two years and um, it takes a lot of endurance for an entrepreneur. So I'm curious for you personally, what was it like, you know, for you as a savage in your founding the company? What was the pace, the intensity like for you? Yeah. So I was 25 when um, I jumped in. I was 29. I, my life is marked by sort of when I had my kids because I think as a parent, I won't just say women, you, you start thinking about your time differently when there's an opportunity cross with the children. So I had my first one in 2009. So that first four years, you know, my husband and I, I would say still put a lot into our careers, but in particular, the first 10 to 12 years, we like really went hard. And said, if our 20s and early 30s look different, maybe our late 30s and early 40s can look different. You know, it's like each decade, you kind of want to see that things are uh, moving in the right direction. And so, I mean, it was, it's a ton of hours. And the more you can put in when you're young, and I tell people, I could never, I I mean, I could, 
but it would that it would be a very different environment to start element three at the age of 40 because I was coming from so far behind in my understanding of almost everything that I do today because I didn't even take a marketing class in college like that's how unqualified I was for my job and so you just have to read the internet on things you just have to like you know get your hands dirty you've got to overwork almost everything that you do because you don't even actually have a good starting point. And so you'll go down a path. I remember writing marketing strategies always in the evenings and Saturday mornings at like butt crack 30 and just kind of starting out with like a prayer. Like I don't actually have any, I have no idea what I'm doing. I trust that I'm intelligent. And so I have to start figuring out how do I take this goal that is leads or brand share or whatever it looks like and this bucket of money that I have and come up with a plan that I can convince myself that I would spend my own money on. Like, how am I going to do that? And, and I, you just kind of start pretending like, you know, the answer. And then I, I, I love how it connects to finance in this way. And that when you're in finance, you create a budget, which also is a guess on what you think is going to happen over the course of the next 12 months. And then in finance, you close the books every 30 days. And so you see what actually happened. And then you compare to look at variance. What was my budget? And what did I think? What actually happened? And what happened? And then you interrogate the assumption, you know, sort of the gap between them so that you can make a little better guess the next time. And so I use that construct when I would go to clients and say, we're going to just be honest, we're both guessing. If you knew the answer to the strategy, you wouldn't have to pay me to do it. I also do not have a magic wand that's going to be able to promise you results. But what I can tell you is I'm clear on the assumptions we're making. We understand what we're going to actually execute, which I actually discovered to find the greatest place where strategies fell down. It wasn't that they didn't have the right ideas, whoever they were. It was that I never actually got the full implementation to figure out where your idea is right or where they're wrong. So I, I was like, if we think about this, like closing the books every 30 days, and we take a snapshot of where our progress is at, where the scorecard is at, we're going to be able to get a better guess in 30 days, a little better in 60, a little better in 90. And so if you can hang with me on the sort of incremental approach to learning, then we might have a shot at sort of being successful together. And so that was kind of the pitch. Um, and that fundamental is still very much alive in our business today. Yes, we have more sophisticated tools. We have way more you know, experienced marketers. We have 16, 17 years of track record of practicing marketing you know, in, in the marketplace. But I think that as marketers, we have to have a sense of humility. And I think this is for you know, CEOs, entrepreneurs, people who are in the early days of entrepreneurship. That thinking you know something is sometimes a very dangerous assumption. And because there is so much change in marketing, we have to always have this sense of, I'm not going to say doubt, but I would say humility, that the thing that we know may be changing so fast that it isn't true anymore. And I think in the early days of entrepreneurship, there's that same fine balance between a confidence that you think you see something, you see, think you see an opportunity in the market. And so you're willing to go after it and ship some time and resources, but also a humility to listen really closely to what you're getting back because there might be a pivot that's a little different than what you thought. So I think that's a key, a key piece to sort of how we were able to get to where we are today. Yeah, that's a fantastic insight. I'm, I'm just curious because, you know, one of the things we talk about on Savage to Sage is self-awareness is kind of that key attribute, especially for 
an early entrepreneur like you're describing you were, you know, back 15, 16 years ago. And with that insight that you just gave about the need to be humble and to really listen and be curious, was that something that you knew about yourself already? Was that something that you discovered? Was it a hard lesson that you had to learn or did it come pretty naturally? Yeah. So I think my story with that is kind of interesting as you ask the question. I actually think I've always naturally been pretty self-aware. Like when people tell stories about me as a kid, it's usually that I said the thing everybody was thinking, but like (laughs) adults don't say those things. So I think that's a natural part of me. But what I found being a young entrepreneur is I actually stuffed all that for a while. I would say until we hit the 2010, 2009, 10, 11, like economic collapse, that experience forced the real me to come forward because I didn't have any energy left to sort of change who I was. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So when I was like 25, 26, 27, 28, in those earlier, I thought I needed to be this like very buttoned up, very professional, kind of omniscient, all-knowing professional. And I think especially when you feel like you have no backstop financially, like, you know, your business is sort of on the ropes all the time. And we weren't funded, you know, this is like bootstrapped to the nines. (laughs) Um, I think you feel the sense of vulnerability and all of that. And so you try to overcompensate by sort of putting on this armor of competency And what I found when I was sort of like broken to my core, when we went through the recession of 09 and 010 in our business, is that I started to see if I didn't get really honest with myself about what was going on and start getting really real about the questions that I actually had in the business with people who could help me, that I was going to drown. I was going to go out of business. I was going to drown and then go out of business or go out of business and then drown. One of the two were going to happen or they were both going to happen. And so I think in that lesson, I started to see so much power in being vulnerable and really honest with what was going on, even with my customers, which felt like the ultimate risk to go to them and say, we didn't know it all. We didn't have all the answers. We didn't have six months of cash or whatever the thing was. And I started to find that my, some of my clients became some of my most powerful mentors hmm. because they wanted the work that we were doing for them to be successful. And they started to get to the place where they wanted me to be successful. And so they were really, I think, a real agent of change. And they would take the time to like, give me an understanding of, hey, what happened after I send you this deck? Like, what are the questions the board has of this thing? If I asked you to triple your budget, what would you need to go do? Like, I've got to be able to sort of test hypotheticals with them. And so my learning just totally changed versus... I am the vendor, they are the client, we have this sort of robotic, one directional relationship, you're not getting anything out of that. And so, again, I think that was my own development. As I look at businesses today, I think either I'm more aware of it, or there's people who are just better at that than I was. And so once I was able to kind of shed that expectation of perfection, and really show up, I think, in a way that's just more authentic to me, like say what I think, say the thing that's uncomfortable because it's probably true is actually, I think, pretty honest to who I am. It was just giving myself permission to be able to say it and be it. Yeah, that's fantastic and and profound. I I have appreciated, you know, seeing your post on LinkedIn this year, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, probably a, a similar year to 
the after the 08 recession or and i think you know what especially what you've talked about regarding you know, being a parent and a and a ceo and i was just curious if you could you know, weave in that into your story about how you have you've balanced being a parent being a ceo how you've integrated it you know whatever language is is best for you there but just yeah. to hear that part of your story yeah well i think the cry of everybody's heart with this idea of being of, of wanting to choose both career and family is this like undying question of, am I doing it right? And I think that's what we all want to know. And the thing that sucks is that we won't totally know the answer until it's over, right? Um, And so I think that's what we're dying to know. And so what I've found is I've kind of shared a window into my husband and I's choices with our own kids or some of our experiences or the things that I've sort of found some humor in because it's just such a train wreck. I think people connect to it because they get some sense of confidence that, oh, it's messy there too. Like it's messy in my house too. And it's like Mm -hmm. the sense of calmness that comes when you realize, oh, this is just the way it goes. It's not that I'm doing it wrong. And, and so I think that's why it resonates so much with people when we sort of share what's going on inside of the four walls of the sour house. Um, I also, there's been something really interesting that's changed in my own, I think, understanding of the role I maybe have to play and bringing a voice and maybe some attention of what it looks like to be really career motivated. And then also really wanting to play a pretty traditional role in the house from, you know, as a mom, Mm -hmm. a wife is that, you know, we all have choices to make and it doesn't make it right or wrong. I'm always really careful to be like, just because I'm a working mom. Like I would say works outside the home. That doesn't, that doesn't um, make choosing to stay home worse, less than it's just different than the choice that I chose. And that has a totally different set of challenges. They're both hard. One is not easy. And the other one is hard. One is not right. And the other one is wrong. It's all about finding peace in the thing you choose. And that I think is the most liberating of it all because they're both hard. Being a grown up's hard. Like it's just it. And I think that we, we sort of t- joke and tease ourselves with this idea of like next year will be perfect. When my kids are out of diapers, like once I've lost 10 pounds, like once we go to counseling, like whatever the thing is, at some point oh, skies are going to part and we're going to find this utopic environment of being an adult. And it just frankly doesn't exist. And so how do you find joy and peace in the struggle of getting there? And so, you know, though I, I want to play that role gracefully. I was starting to say, I think having my fourth daughter, and realize like, not only am I a woman, but I have four girls that I'm going to raise. That was like a very big number. It feels like in my head, it somehow cemented to me that like, this is the thing I am going to study is, is women, not just because I am one, but because I have to, the only thing God has asked me to raise is girls so far. I don't know. We're not going to have any more kids. I don't know. Maybe like, but that's what I have to really learn and understand. And so how do I use my voice? To not only pave a way for my daughters, but to also give courage to other moms who are raising girls, because they're the ones that are going to sort of be the world in 30 years. They're the ones that are going to sort of paint what's important and what the priorities are in our culture. And so what role do I have in sort of being a small voice in that? So I, I'm, I'm still, I would say, finding that, but somehow having Quincy, our fourth, was uh, kind of a weird sort of you know, like the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, kind of moment for me. Mm-hmm. So. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, and I feel like we could go on that topic, you know, for a long time. And you probably have, you know, with with others and maybe other shows or but it's it sounds like an awesome, you know, book or just something for you to to go deeper on if if I could put my opinion out there, because that's that's very needed, you know, as I have a wife who's in a similar position, a number of my colleagues are in similar positions as you um, as executives and leaders. And, and so, yeah, it's powerful. Um, I want to transition to your team. And I'm thinking about, as you have shared your most recent revelations and, um, you know, interactions with your family and during this time, like how has your team responded to that? And then also, as you have um, just had a history, it sounds like of being very transparent and leading you know, from an authentic place. Yeah. So I first want to say like, in a way that I never could have imagined, I'm so proud of the way that our team has shown up in 2020. I think there's probably CEOs all across the world saying that. I think we all really got to see what we're made of, like what we were really made of. Because if anybody would have put in front of us December 31st, 2019, the list of things that we all individually were going to have to face I think all of us just as a human race would have said that is categorically not possible. Like I won't survive that. And to see how these individuals have shown up in a way that has, I think surprised them how strong they are and found incredible results for clients in the face of so much uncertainty in spite of their own, you know, there's been chaos in all of our homes. There's been chaos in our heads as parents and leaders there's been chaos in our hearts as we navigate this, you know, social unrest in a way that I've not experienced in 40 years, this sort of political polarization that starts to create such divide in teams and families and communities. It's just been so much. And, and then, and in spite of all that we've been asked to go through and we're isolated and as people, we're community people. And so I've been so proud of them, but I, I think because we fundamentally had transparency as part of our culture, I think they, my team expected us to show up and tell them the real story. And, you know, I think this is environments where business owners, when you are going to do open book financials, which we do, or be transparent with your team, this is usually not a like good news environment. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. there's layoffs or there's perks that have to pull back or there's you know, we've got to make good decisions financially right now because none of us had the advantage of knowing when this thing is going to end. You know, mm-hmm. you're same with you, Dan. Like, do I need do I need cash for two years? Do I need cash for thirty days? Do I are my clients going to keep like none of us have a crystal ball? And so, mm-hmm. being able to articulate to our team what was the risk profile that we were going to go into this with, and what decisions did that mean that we were going to need to make. And how were those good for them? How did those protect them? How did they understand sort of, you know, where we were at? I think the fundamental sort of aspect of transparency allowed those conversations to be, I don't want to say easy, but expected. Um, And I think that really helped catalyze us sort of keep the train moving fast through this. You know, I'm sure you read a thousand different articles as well as we're sort of on the early stages of this pandemic about, well, how do you navigate people through such huge crises? And the the biggest theme I kept seeing was your goal is to move them through the pain as fast as possible so that you can normalize and people have a sense of focus again. 
And so that was my focus for the first 45 days was like, we all have to freak out. We have to, that's a natural part of reacting to this. But as soon as we can all get back together and get our bearings and understand at least our new assumed rules of engagement, we got to get back to work um, because the world's not going to stop. You know, lease payments are not going to stop. Mortgage payments are not going to stop. All of this continues to be a part of our existence. And so we've got to be able to show up like a boss, even though we're sort of freaking the F out, so to speak. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Show up like a boss. So to have team members that, you know, follow you as, as an authentic leader and, you know, and then show up like a boss, like they have during this time. I mean, it, that to me speaks of like how you are finding them and how you're, you know, so who are the, like, how do you know someone's a fit for your, your team at E3, a cultural fit, someone that's going to show up in that way? Yeah, I think that, you know, we look for transferable, like somebody who can go in and just like, like I was saying at the beginning, like marketing is changing all the time. And so if you think that you've mastered it, like you're already dead. And so we look for a lot of learning agility. I guess that's the way to look at and talk about it. And ways where people have kind of by habit jump into new things a lot. You know, like they learn guitar or they like, you know, started a side hustle or they um, built a robot with their kid or like whatever it is. They kind of are like constantly jumping into new things. That learning agility is a really important part. I think not just of a marketing environment, but an agency environment on top of that, because we have to be pretty quick across a broad spectrum of brands and people. That switching cost is a like having a low switching cost, meaning you can do that really quickly, is a really key part of whether you're going to like being an agency or that you're going to like flat be real tired. Um, I also think a will to win. I mean, I'm super competitive. Uh, I think mostly with myself, but I also like a target. My team will echo that that's true. And so I just, I like people who are like, man, it is going to be hard. I promise you it is going to be hard. And I'm not going to protect you from the fact that it's going to be hard because there's a lot to learn when you start to see, you can see something hard, you can execute with precision and you get the satisfaction of doing it. Like that, I think is what life is about. And so finding people who just love to win and, you know, whether they were athletes or whether they were, um, I mean, I was not sporty or athletic, so it's not like that's the only place. It's just an obvious place to look for people who are competitive. But I also love like, you know, get a good youngest child in there who's trying to prove their older siblings wrong. Like I'll take that every day of the week too. So um, just people who have a real innate sense to, you know, sort of, a passion to win is a real important part of our culture too. Yeah. I had the chance to get to know Joe Mills and I, through uh through you. And I feel like he has, you know, shown me every aspect that you just described and also could kick my ass, you know, even though he's about half my size. So yeah, literally <laughs> and figuratively. Yeah. He's a great, right. I mean, he's a poster child for it. He's got a CrossFit gym on the side. He actually yeah. was, you know, a college athlete and, what I find people who had the advantage of being college athletes is that they've been coached their whole life. And honestly, I had to learn that as an adult. I think we get this sort of false sense of fact that like we know things when we don't have a coach constantly in our face. And so I had to learn that from 25 to 35, where some, I think people come to the professional world expecting to kind of get kicked in the face. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of routine. So. <laughs> 
them. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned some of your like cultural values. I imagine that you have those, you know, written down somewhere and those are like sent out and shared out to your team. How do you as a CEO kind of ensure that your team, your managers are are living into and kind of monitoring how you're doing with those living out those values, not them just being, you know, a nice poster on the wall? Yeah. Well, we, we talk about them all the time. And I, I have actually learned how to be able to I would say lead through the lens of them where I have them more in my vocabulary. Like mm-hmm. if I'm talking about some client work that we did that was exceptional, I want to bring out to the team, here's the value that you all displayed. Stay curious is one of them. You know, you guys mm-hmm. displayed stay curious and being able to go out and solve that in-person event that had to switch virtual in 23 days. Like that was such a demonstration of your willingness to stay curious. So that's a way to tell the story to them with words that actually use our values. So I think one is as a CEO, it's your job, your whole leadership team to weave those into the narrative as you're talking to them, encouraging your team, giving feedback, that we keep them alive in that way. Because we, if we can't use them well, our teams won't be able to. Mm-hmm. The other is that we have this peer recognition system called the awesome block system. It's just like a thing we made. And it's an online portal that we built. And you can go in and pick a value, write a little, you know, one to seven sentences, whatever you want about how that person displayed it. You push send, they get this little like certificate in the email, in the email mm-hmm. and then they get a Lego block. It's like so benign, but starts to become a way that when we were all in the office physically, you could really see, you know, people sort of Lego figures grow as a way to sort of look at who was culturally really being a catalyst. And each month when we do our business review, we bring everybody together and talk about how we did. We highlight some of those awesome blocks. So we have um, interpretive readings, which are very dramatic readings, which are very fun. Um, Well, they'll pick a few and kind of bring them forward. And then we share with people like, hey, 73 awesome blocks were given last month as a way to kind of keep the value actively used across the team um, in a recognition way. So I think those are two practical things that we do that make people. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. So um, last two kind of lightning round questions that I'd like to end on with everyone. The first is, you know, you've given a lot of advice today for, you know, someone that's a new entrepreneur that's thinking of jumping out or just started along the path. But what would be kind of the top thing, the one big thing you would say this focus on this as a new entrepreneur? Learn how to sell. It's non-negotiable. Um, non-negotiable, spend time and money learning how to sell well, because you will get punched in the face. You will lose your biggest client. You will have something go super wrong. You will have your, you know, um, your sugar mama or sugar daddy, like salesperson leave. It will happen to you. And when you have the ability to fall back on your own skill to sell your way out of a problem, um, I have found that to be very helpful. I spent three years like just learning how to sell. And I think it's a superpower of mine now. And it gives me an intense amount of confidence that I can get ourselves out of things that just go wrong. Not because you mean for them to go wrong, but because they do. And being right. able to get new revenue gives you a chance to live another day, especially when you're self-funded like we are. Yeah. Very good advice. Um, The second one is if you had an hour or a day to recharge, to take care of yourself, to 
do the thing that you know, like this is going to recharge me better than anything else? Like, what would you do? Um, in a non-pandemic world, I'd probably fly to New York City with my husband for the weekend. And like, um, I'm I'm like an extroverty extrovert. So being in the middle okay. of a city, staying in like a really nice hotel, going to a Broadway show and eating dinner at like 1130. Great sushi. Yeah. And shutting down a place with like a jazz band at like 2.30 in the morning. Nice. I'd feel like dog crap the next day, but I would feel be very fun. That's the thing that yeah. I <laughs> What about like an hour during the pandemic? Like what what recharges you right now? Um exercise. Mm-hmm. I think physical activity, going on a run, feeling like cold air. And like my lungs hurting, that I think makes me feel alive in the way that being on the screen all day, being sort of constantly interrupted with kids, it can sort of be this numbing sense of like, you can't feel yourself. Like you probably, like how many meals have you had that you haven't like actually tasted? Because there's just so much crap going on in your head or, you know, you've got an infant, like somebody's holding and you're just. You're just keeping yourself going, but you're not actually feeling or experiencing anything. That's what I find happens to me in stages like this. So like going on a run by myself where it's like cold or hot or windy, whatever the sort of it is, makes me at least really feel. And that makes me feel recharged. Love it. Yeah. You and I share that. And one thing I missed this morning was being able to do that. So I'm like, when when can I find 30 minutes to do that? Because yeah, it's, it's so recharging. That's right. And, um, Thank you so much for your time and sharing transparently your story. Um, I like don't say this often, but I'm like pumped up and ready to start the day. And you're like what you shared is very inspiring. And like I need to go do this. I'm ready to go do this. And I'm just excited for others to who listen to have that experience as well. So thank you. And um, if people want to get in touch with you and E3, where would you point them? Yeah, the best place is LinkedIn. It's where I'm the most active from a content perspective. I share both things about sort of being a working parent, exploring kind of how, how you know, sharing what I'm learning about leadership, and then also give some sort of nuggets of what we're working on in Element 3. Fantastic. So Tiffany Souter at LinkedIn. It's fantastic. S-U-U-D-E-R. And thanks again for the time today. Thanks, Daniel. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to today's interview. To view show notes or hear more episodes, please visit www.savagetosage.com.